Hi there, I'm Mark Isero, and this is Article Club, where we read, annotate, and discuss one great article every month on race, education, or culture. Welcome to 2024, everyone, and I'm happy to say that we're starting this year off strong. This month, we're going to be focusing on the article Saying No to College, which was published a few months ago in the New York Times Magazine, and which was written by Paul Tuff, who is not only one of my favorite education writers, but also happens to be the first ever returning author to Article Club. In February 2020, when we were just kicking off this thing, Mr. Tuff shared his thoughts on a chapter from his book, The Inequality Machine. It was a hopeful chapter about the promise of college. But now it's four years later, and things have shifted in public opinion about the value of college. And so Mr. Tuff has written this piece, which explores why more and more Americans are turning away from higher education. It was an honor to chat with Mr. Tuff again. We talked about a wide range of topics, but instead of listing them here, let's get right to the interview. Paul Tuff, thank you for being back here at Article Club. Thanks for inviting me back. You were very helpful at the beginning of Article Club. You were excited about this experiment. And I'm just really happy that that you're back to talk again. How do you feel about being the first ever second time returning author, writer, journalist to Article Club? It's an honor. I feel like a, like an official mascot or um, sidekick or something. Uh, but it's great to be back. Great to have you back. Last time we talked about your book, The Inequality Machine, How College Divides Us. And specifically, I feel it was a feel-good chapter about Yvonne and Professor Treisman. And I called it triumphant. It was beautiful. Everybody loved it. But here now, you're you're still following the college thing, which is great. But I feel there's been a little bit of a shift here in this piece, the latest one in the New York Times, it was called Saying No to College. And so what's going on here in general from the book until now? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a little bit of a shift in me and a little bit or maybe a big shift in the culture. I think what was going on is that there was this shift going on in the culture regarding college as I was reporting. So I, I identify in this chapter, you know, that things started to really change uh, in public opinion about higher education around uh, 2015 or so. And that's right when I, I started working on this book. You know, I was reporting like, yeah, 2015, 2016, 2017, writing 2018, came out 2019. And I all along, like the, the some of this is is sort of like has to do with the, the vagaries of publishing. But I feel like there was part, there was partly like a, a difference, a different view between me and my publisher, but also a different view within myself about what I was trying to say about college and, and what what was the right thing to say about college? And I'd started out, you know, my my previous books were about mostly following like nonprofit organizations that were doing great things, helping kids in school or in early childhood or, or in college, like try to succeed. And mostly like what those nonprofits were doing made sense and were sort of following good science. As I did this reporting, I started to feel this disconnect between what I was hearing from sort of national organizations and people in the White House and, um, and, and, and sort of experts and what I was hearing from families who were often feeling like actually the, the higher education is just a bad experience for our family, right? Like in one way or another, this is making us miserable. And so, yeah, there were people like Yvonne who was, you know, I should say miserable for a lot of that semester, but whose story really was fantastic and who was a great example of how uh, college can be absolutely transformative. I should say she went on to 
graduate from uh, UT with honors and went to Harvard and got an MA in data science and she's doing amazingly. So her story continues to be, uh, I would actually say triumphant. But uh, I think there are lots of, uh, there were lots of other people who I met, some who I wrote about, some who I didn't, who, you know, whether they were like dropping out of community college or going to Princeton, were having a pretty miserable experience. And it took a few years of both sort of reflection and new data, data about the finances of college that I think emerged in the last few years, and then data about public opinion about college, for me to understand that this discontent was not sort of um, an, an, an outlier experience. It was really what a lot of Americans were feeling, both those who were going to college, uh, sending kids to college, but also those who were just watching from afar, that there was something really wrong in higher education. And I feel like there's this tension within the book where sometimes that was exactly how I was feeling. Sometimes I was I was reflecting a more positive outlook. Um, but what I wanted to do in this article was to to ex both sort of capture uh, and uh, that darkening mood and also try to explain it, try to understand how things that had happened in the last few years, but also stuff that I was reporting on a decade ago had had congealed into this really negative uh, mood that a lot of people were feeling. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Yeah, as far as like the mood, I, even though I feel this mood every day at school, and I do feel a little bit of the shift that you talk about at the beginning of your piece, I was also shocked. And uh, we've all read the article, you know, as far as like how views have changed markedly over the last decade. Were you shocked? And specifically, which piece or which things shocked you the most as far as in this survey data? I think the thing that might have shocked me the most was the Generation Z students saying that all you need to to be financially secure is a high school diploma, right? Um, <laughs> that was because, really wild. Yeah, because I mean, I think there's a lot of like projection, wishful thinking there. I sort of implied that, right? But like that is not in the data, right? The, the one thing that is not coming through in the data is that things are awesome for those with only a high school diploma. Since the pandemic, there's a there's a, a, a positive trend in the data that like actually high school diploma only folks are doing a little bit better uh, in terms of salary increases than people with higher degrees. But like it's a it's a small catch up after decades <laughs> of things going the opposite direction. Um, and so there just is not evidence for what those young people are saying, like half of those young people are saying. And these are the people who are making decisions right now about whether they're going to go to college and stay in college. And we know that generation is really struggling because of COVID and finances and everything else. And so that 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 just sort of that, that makes me nervous um, and, and was very surprising to me. That one was very surprising to me. Also, the one about parents, everybody wanted their kid to go to college 10 years ago. And then no, now nobody it wasn't nobody. But the data is way yeah. different at this point. Yeah, that's going to be tough, you know, but we can talk about that a little bit later, because at the end of the piece, you're like, hey, what does this actually mean about America if like very few people go to college all the time? But I wanted to ask you also about this distinction now. And I feel like this is sort of new because, you know, I've been in education for a long time. And of course, all the data says that if you go to college, you're going to make more money over the course of your life. And you say yes, too. And it was just really great how you talked about this notion of the college wage premium versus this sort of like maybe newer concept of the college wealth premium. And you know, I because you have covered, you know, education and college for a long time, just want to hear, you know, more for our article clubbers. Like, how did you find that? How did you find these researchers? Um, was this something that you've been following? Is this new? Like, like this was like very revelatory, you know, for me, this this new newer concept for me of the college wealth premium. 
Yeah. You know, to be honest, I can't quite remember how I originally found those two papers. But So the, the two that I felt were most important were yeah, both coincidentally from researchers at the Federal Reserve, though in different parts of the Federal Reserve, one about the college wage premium and one about this sort of new variability in in returns to college. I think I found them just the way I often do, like reading reading papers and articles and then looking for footnotes and finding where those where those footnotes led in terms of other papers. I mean, it, so they they're not new, right? Like these papers are a few years old, like three or four years old. I think at least one of them came out before my book did, but I never heard about it while I was working on the book. Uh, you know, in part because I think they were sort of counterintuitive and against the 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 main thrust of of public opinion and economic opinion. But while the reason I went looking for them was that I felt like there was this disconnect between the college wage premium, which I've you know written about for a long time, and that seems like a pretty reasonable way to think about the the value of college and public opinion, right? Like that I I just kept getting stuck on this fact that like people are saying college isn't worth it, college isn't worth it. The economic data says college is worth it, college is worth it. Something else has got to be going on. And that and so when I found these two studies, it was like, ah, maybe this is is part of uh part of the answer. And so you decide to reach out to them. First of all, I just want to like pause and say like, okay, so you read the footnotes of these things. Like that's, hey, close reader. So thank you, uh, Paul, for that. So you read the footnotes, you contact these folks and like these folks are at the Federal Reserve and you actually talk to four different people, at least the ones that I see in the in the article. You got Lowell Ricketts, William Emmons and Anna Hernandez Kent. And then later on, you talk about Douglas Weber. So like these folks are like super smart and write these things about regressions or whatever and have all this data. Do you talk to them on the phone? Last time with, you know, Treisman, you obviously go there and you spend the whole year with them. But like, how do you do how does this differ, you know, with this kind of piece versus, you know, like the book? Like, did you try to go out and meet them in person? How do you get to know them? Who are these people? You know, how did it go there? Good question. So, yeah, it's a totally different kind of reporting. Um, and and this piece is really very different uh, for me than than most of what I've written, because there is no on the ground reporting. I, I basically never, never left my office. Uh, I just talked to two. I only talked to one of the, 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 the three economists you mentioned who wrote that piece together. I only talked to Lowell Ricketts. Um, one of them was on leave. Another one had left Federal Reserve. Lowell Ricketts was sort of the representative of that paper. And then I talked to Douglas Weber. And we just yeah talked by Zoom um, and uh, had a few conversations with both of them. And they were great and really interesting. But um, yeah, there was there was sort of nothing to see. Uh, and, and, and that was I mean, it was definitely like felt like a departure for me, like a different kind of reporting. And some of that felt like like I missed the experience of going and talking to individual students, individual researchers. There was also though something like as a writing experience, it was sort of interesting to to try that, right? Like that I'm very used to this idea that I, I feel like I got, I mean, not only from being a writer, but from being an editor that like the right way to write feature articles about about social issues is to combine these two types of reporting. So you've got your on the, on the ground reporting and then you've got your um, talking to economists reporting. And I'm so used to that that it just sort of becomes like a, a, a like it's second nature. But it's also it's 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 true that a lot of people do don't do it that way. Right. Like uh, a lot of people do. It's sort of a New York Times magazine trope, let's say. But like there's a lot of people like so I, I went recently to hear Eli Saslow talk. Do you know him? Yeah, um, he's he's actually been part of Article Club. For, oh, he has for right. what, oh. for his latest. Well, the piece about American education where he goes down to Arizona. It was amazing. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. The teachers from the Philippines. Yeah, yeah, that was a great piece. Um, so. 
you know, but what's so striking about him, like, if I remember that piece correctly, like, he's just such an on the ground reporter, right? Like, so he'll give you a few national statistics and and like, give you the, the perspective. Um, but mostly he's just showing you what's right, what, what's right in front of him. Catherine Boo, uh, who was really influential on me, I think of her the same way that she's like, she's going to give you a little like, this is what this means. But mostly I'm going to tell you exactly. And they're, you know, both of them just such fantastic, detailed reporters that they're able to do that. And so so the piece about Yvonne uh, and calculus from the book uh, had a lot of that in it. As, as we talked about, I was there for months. Um, but also sort of interspersing that with here's what, you know, calculus professors say about what's wrong with studying uh, with uh, the way calculus is taught in high schools and colleges, etc. And so it was interesting for me in this case, it felt like I could have done that, like I could have created a family, like gone and found a family and gone back and forth between the two things. There is something about that that feels sometimes like, I mean, it, it you know, what you what you are forced to forcing the material to do is to like have the character fit the story, right? And sometimes you can do that by talking to lots of like Yvonne, I feel like she did fit the story really perfectly. But she's also just like sort of one example of this larger thing. Whereas like sometimes I think the right way to tell a story is like just tell the national story, just tell the the big picture stuff. Don't try to have your representative, uh, your representative family. Um, and so anyway, in this case, that felt like the right way to do it. And that was how I reported it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, because I was going to ask you a follow up on like how you write clearly with statistics, because you had to in this piece, which is shorter than some of your other stuff, I feel you had. Yeah. To get through you had a mission i feel about like the survey data and then this research data and also to explain you know i feel like in some ways if you had humanized some sort of family or some it would have sort of taken away from your primary mission and like i feel like a lot of writers can put in a statistic or whatever and then you sort of move along but i feel like you were really helping the reader really understand the shift but also like i can rattle off even though i've only read this you know three or five times like i can rattle off all the stuff because i remember the statistics because of how you explain them. And I do feel, though, that you made a choice, though, toward the end when you were really explaining, like, what young people and families have to go through when they are choosing a college, because you call it sort of like a casino. And I don't know if you've gotten some controversy with regard to this, because this is not the researcher's term. This was you sort of like bringing in this possible metaphor. So that is a choice I feel that that you made. And I wanted to sort of like ask you about why there, because basically you're explaining that, hey, if you go and graduate from college, you're good. But then if you don't, you're not good, especially if you have to. It was all this calculus about if you have to borrow money and you don't graduate, then like you're totally screwed in, in many ways. And so like you really laid this out and you could have just laid it out, but you also sort of like went for this like casino reference. Can you say more about that? Sure. Um, yeah, there's a few few things I want to say about that. But th so so the main one is like that that um, so so that was the from this, the research by this guy Douglas Weber, who until recently was a professor at I believe Temple, and then um, like two years ago or something joined the Federal Reserve. And he, for an economist, he's like a really um, he's a good writer, and <laughs> like his papers are really interesting. He he tries to be accessible. Um, he doesn't just write sort of you know National Bureau of Economic uh, Statistics style um, reports. He writes 
you know, for think tanks and things and tries to organize his information in a way that's going to make sense. So a lot of that came from him. Um, the, the other thing, this is maybe just like sort of a reporterly aside, is that now that he's at, when you're at the Federal Reserve, this is something I learned, uh, there's a lot of anxiety among the the press, the PR people at the Federal Reserve that uh, about what their economists say, right? Because they, like if the Federal Reserve says the wrong thing, like the stock market can <laughs> tank and interest rates can go higher and all sorts of things can happen. So it was very important to them that they, that uh, I make clear that the casino idea was, or casino phrase was mine and, and not his, that they didn't want the Federal Reserve to be saying that higher education is a casino. But he kind of laid it out, right? Like he was expressing it in terms of odds. He was, uh, he has this one paper that really very nicely uh, laid out exactly what I ended up doing. To me, it felt like a casino. And, and that struck me as like a, a pretty appealing and um, clarifying way, uh, metaphor to use to make sense of what this feels like to students. And it, and it was what I, what I, the impression that I got years ago when I was talking to families and continued uh, over the past few years that, that, that that's what it was so unsettling about senior year of, of, of uh, high school, not just like the expense, not just the, um, you know, the drama of trying to get in, but the, the uncertainty, right? Like maybe this is going to work and maybe it's just going to be a disaster, um, which was not my experience of being a high school uh, senior, right? Like I, I thought, well, I don't know how I'll do. I don't know if this is going to be the right place for me. I didn't think it was going to like ruin the next 20 years of my life, as I think a lot of high school students have to think right now. Yeah. And I feel like from the casino. So with the casino metaphor, you know, the house wins. And also like generally, unless you're counting cards, you don't necessarily have an undue advantage, but you sort of shift there and you say, okay, but it's a casino, but also some folks are coming in differently. And this has been a piece, you know, for all of your reporting over many, many years about the inequities of, you know, the system, as well as the affordances and benefits that come from, especially the elite part, which a lot of folks are like trying to, to tackle at this point, like, oh, like trying to bash and you know, sort of like the elite institutions, but you sort of like remained there at the end. You're saying like, we've got to deal with this issue where there are some families who are already having a lot of privilege who are playing this casino in a different way than all the folks who might want sort of like the social mobility American dream. And so it was very interesting how like you first sort of talked about the calculus. And I was like, you know, as an educator, it's like, okay, must graduate from college no matter what. But then you made it even harder and you complicated it even more by talking about just how it's totally unfair right from the beginning as folks, you know, navigate this casino. Yeah, I mean, I think like that, you know, clearly from from my book, that is like just a motivating on an emotional level. That's the motivating force for me, right? Like I, I care about the finances and, and even the politics is sort of interesting to me that I wrote about. But it's the inequality of higher education that is what makes me mad and what feels most important to um, to resolve. And I think there's also like what on, on just an emotional level, it's like that that's where it feels like there's a lot of hypocrisy in the system um, that, you know, so many institutions of higher education talk so much about diversity and opportunity and equality while they're doing while while they're undermining it with their practices uh, admissions and and finances and otherwise and like in an article of this length it's like it's hard to quickly say higher education is really unequal <laughs> um, and that's what's really nice about the opportunity insights research uh, Raj Chetty and John Friedman and David Deming and their crew that they've you know some of which came out before my book did and some of which is more recent they've just really put numbers on a lot of the things that I was trying to say in my book um, they they're they're demonstrating it with really solid statistics now and so what I've tried to do in that section 
was, you know, pretty efficiently and quickly say, all right, here's some data to prove my point. If you want to know more, you can read my book. But that the fact of that inequality, like not only is making things rough for a lot of students, it is also, I think, behind a lot of that uh, turn in public opinion, you know, that it, when when it it's not only feels expensive, it not only feels, um, you know, politically slanted, but it also just feels unfair. Like that, I think, stirs up a lot of these political sort of politically minded feelings about higher education, but also the individual students sense of of um, what they're what they're what they're walking into as they leave high school and make that decision about college. Yeah, as far as like walking into, I want to sort of go there a little bit. Now, you'll likely say you're not an educator, so you don't want to you know, give advice, but you're a parent. It's totally true that about 10 years ago, the advice was if you were an educator, you basically counsel your student, hey, go to college and go to the best college and even like take out some student loans because everything's going to be great. Even though we sort of know that 40% of students may not even graduate from college, which, you know, I got from your piece. Uh, it's definitely shifted now uh, to the point where a lot of people actually don't know a lot. I, I would say counselors, high school counselors still have sort of like, you know, they know more about this. They debate it. And so they have a specific message. But a classroom teacher, you know, who sees their kids every single day, especially for first in their families, which, you know, at my school, it's, it's like the majority. We don't actually know what to do anymore, Paul. And so, like, do you have, like, ideas and thoughts? At the end of this piece, you know, especially as a parent, you know, like, this is much more complicated. Before, it used to be easy. So so what are some of your thoughts there? Well, yeah, it's rough. Uh, so my uh, older son is a freshman in high school, so it's not that far off. And, and you know... I there's this line that I, that people used to use and that I used to repeat a few years ago when 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 the the sort of you know the first round of like oh college is is a waste of money you don't need to go you can still make a ton of money as a welder or a plumber like the 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 pushback against that was like well all the people who are saying this they've got college degrees right and they're going to send their kids to college right so uh, if they if they really don't believe in college so much uh, why why don't they send their kids to be a welder right so and uh, there's a lot that's true about that there's a lot of hypocrisy in 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 that you know i feel like very republican like just go be a welder argument but it's also like the the the, the true part of it is that i'm going to make choices for my son or encourage him to make choices because like the system is rigged for him right like he is going to he like he he's good at standardized tests we have money saved for college like he knows the system i know the system so he should go to college <laughs> like and and that's like in lots of ways like wrong and unfair but it is like absolutely true for him that that, that college is going to be a good idea and his life is going to get better if he goes and graduates and he's probably going to graduate right so there are lots of other people for whom that's not true right P people who have uh for whom the finances are going to be worse but also people who have like lower test scores who for whom college is going to be much more of a struggle who are much less likely to graduate and that system is super unfair and wrong and like needs to be changed. And I feel like I've spent a decade trying to encourage people to change it, but it's probably not going to change in the next four years. Um, and so I feel like, yes, we need to give students advice today and tomorrow about what to do. On the advice level, the thing that changed for me was actually writing this article. I, I did an article during the pandemic um, in, the, in 2020, in the fall of 2020, uh, for the Times Magazine, following some students uh, at a high school in Queens who who were like graduating 
high school in the pandemic trying to figure out what to do. And there was an organization that was trying to help them uh, get to get to college. That was the first time that uh, in that story, I was sort of wrestling with this idea, not just that, like, do you go to college, but do you go to the best college that admits you? Right. And that was something that I heard from a lot of, you know, college advising core and one goal and a lot of the other institutions that I wrote about, nonprofits that I wrote about that are trying to help low income students get to college is that actually, you know, it was this sort of Carolyn Hoxby idea, this uh, research that I wrote about back in in the book, that if you um, if you go to the, the the most exclusive, the most selective school that that admits you, it's actually going to be cheaper, right? And talking to this um, young woman who was making her decision in Queens, like that wasn't true. Like she got into Smith and she got like what would some families would consider like great financial aid. It was going to cost her like $15,000 a year for the, to go to this $80,000 a year school. But then she also got into a State University of New York's college in upstate New York. I can't remember which one. And it was going to be like $3,000. Right. So like the the calculus that I had always heard was like, definitely go to Smith. Fifteen thousand dollars. That's nothing like that's a great deal. You're going to go to Smith. You're going to have so many more opportunities for her and her family. It was like fifteen thousand dollars. Like that is that is the like more money than we've ever thought of. Like we're definitely not doing that. Right. And and I had spent so much time feeling like that was that was bad advice and that like parents were giving kids this bad advice and were holding them back. And like the point of nonprofits was to override these parents and make these kids go to these more selective places. And I came to feel like, no, that's not right for this for this uh, young woman. Like she's going to get a great uh, education at this state university. Uh, and that's it's going to feel right to her. She's not going to be around a lot of like super rich kids that are going to make her feel alienated. She's going to feel more connected to her home. Anyway, so I'm saying all this to say that I, I, I do feel like a lot of for a lot of families, there should be um, a series of decisions that are not just like Smith or working at Subway. Right. And 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 there are like they aren't as good as they should be. Right. That is the frustrating thing. Like we like it would be great if there was a, a great path to go to two years of community college and then to a good state school where you finish your four year degree or four years at a California state university or UC or something. Um, but still, that system's especially in California, it, that system is not bad. Right. Like the California state university system, some many California community colleges, certainly UC schools like they're, they're a great pathway. Um, and they're cheaper and they like there's often a pretty straightforward pathway to get in. And so that that is, I think, like what and I, I'm not inventing this. I think a lot of college advisors and teachers and lots of other people are doing this, like really getting students to think about the finances, think about the challenges of like what it takes to get through two years of community college, which is often much harder than getting through two years at Smith <laughs> because you have to be more self-sufficient. There aren't the same kind of resources, but it's possible. Right. And and figure Figuring out like how to work community college, how to make it work for you and how to get the, you know, get the classes you need and get the credits that are going to transfer well, despite the system being rigged against you. Um, and so I feel like all of that stuff was not thing, not what I was focused on and, and not what I think a lot of the guidance counselors I was talking to were focused on uh, when I was doing my reporting for the book. But it feels like that's exactly what families and students have to be thinking about. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for that nuance, too, because I see it, too, also with our students at my school is that it's not just sort of like an easy decision at this point. You have to really have a plan and there's different pathways and you have to sort of like see what you're going to be doing and making those choices, you know, for the entirety of your college career and like actually get to the point of graduate. You know, for example, if you're going for that four year 
for that diploma, like the biggest thing back to your casino thing is that you have to graduate. Um, yeah. And so like, that's so crucial. So yeah, thank you so much for that nuance. Um, I have one more question for you because it's all very well and good, you know, for individual students, families to decide, okay, are they going to do college or not? And back to the Gen Z thing about how apparently you don't need to go to college, you know, you can still be sufficient if you don't. But clearly at the end of the piece, you, you still come down to this idea of, okay, well, no, college is still a good thing despite all this different data. But then right at the end, I feel like you did a little bit of turn, which is basically you say, hey, something really bad might happen here unless we figure this out. And so I wanted to first like ask, why did you, you could have easily just finished, you know, with a little bit smaller review, but you did in the end sort of go bigger and talk about America overall, about what would really happen if this trend continues generationally. Can you say a little bit more about why and how you you decided to close the piece? Yeah, I mean, if it, you know, it feels like the, the the sort of paradox. There's lots of paradoxes in in higher education right now, but but one of them is that is this you know just as there's this like there's a paradox between the college wage premium and the college wealth premium. The college wage premium telling you you should always go to college and get and 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 you're always going to do better. The college wealth premium saying you know not so fast. There's lots of people for whom that's not true. I think the same thing is true nationally, right? That like we have this so much of our mindset. I think to our detriment is thinks about higher education as a personal choice and a personal expense, right? Like in high school, like, yeah, that you're, it's a public thing. We're all paying for high school. Then suddenly, like on your 18th birthday, when you, when you go off to college, everything changes and suddenly you're this independent operator and you're, you know, ready to exist in the marketplace of uh, the labor marketplace. And you're making decisions for that are, you know, you're ready to borrow tens of thousands of dollars. Anyway, that like we, we have this mindset that, that, that then becomes this personal thing. And that is not true. <laughs> it's not the way we used to think about college is not the way every other developed nation thinks about college. It, it is still part of this national public um, uh, priority of getting an educated workforce, right? And like we need more uh, people with post secondary diplomas of some kind, whether they're associate's degrees or bachelor's degrees or certificates or PhDs, we need lots more of those. The economy makes that clear. Looking at our peers, our, our global peers makes that true, makes that clear. And so, yeah, I just want like so much. We we tend to think of this so much as an individual family decision. And for a lot of the article, I was expressing it that way because that's that's the way it, it functions in this country. But it shouldn't, right? Like we should be thinking about this as a national question. We should be making decisions about how we fund college, how we support college students, how we regulate colleges that are adding to this national goal of having a better educated uh, population. But that it, it that feels really difficult for us to pull off. And so that's that's the note that I wanted to end on. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, Paul Tuff, thank you for doing Article Club again. I can't wait to talk about your piece with uh, other Article Clubbers. And thank you again for being so generous today. Thank you. I look forward to becoming the uh, first three-timer in a few years. Um, let's keep in touch. Sounds good. Thank you so much. I want to thank Mr. Tuff yet again for generously participating in Article Club. I am very thankful. Article Clubbers, if listening to this interview has gotten you intrigued and you want to talk more about this article, I'd love to invite you to our discussion. It's going to be on Sunday, January 28th from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Pacific Time, and all you need to do is sign up by going to highlighter.cc discussion. I'd be very happy to have you there. All right, that's it for now. Thank you for listening and have a great week.